Welcome to episode 73 of the Contrafabulist podcast. I'm Audrey Waters. And I'm Ken Lane. And I guess apologies for going from a weekly podcast to a bi-weekly podcast. At least it's yeah. somewhat regular. Yeah, well, yeah. We at least we're we're still doing it right. We're just not as as consistent as before, or just in a different pattern, I guess. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that the uh, the the move the move to New York was certainly sort of was a bit of upheaval, and now that we're moving into the uh, end of the year slash holiday season slash whatever. Um, I'm so busy with this other, this other annual project that I work on that really, um, doing the podcast is sort of not top of mind. Yeah. You're, you're, uh, deep in your end of year roundup mode, which is a pretty intense period. And, and I'm not even doing the work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is the eighth year I've done it. And, um, this year I was like, maybe, maybe I'll quit. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's unacceptable, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, I don't know, I, um, I'm guessing that we'll probably do another podcast before the end of the year, but I'll just note that this year is particularly depressing. Um, uh, maybe I'm repeating myself. Sometimes I feel like, like that's part of the problem with these podcasts is we come on here and I feel like I say things that I've already mentioned, but if I'm repeating myself, apologies, but that, you know, in the past, it's been a struggle for me to figure out in these stories or in these articles, like what counts as ed tech and what I, what I need to talk about that's larger, the larger context of both education news and technology news. So it's something I always um, struggle with, that piece of context, which put that note aside. I struggle with thinking about how to help contextualize this because I want to return to that point. Um, but uh, this year was particularly challenging because um, in the past I've done stories that sort of look at all of the education policy decisions that have been made in the U.S. Um, but the Trump administration has really, really been active in the education front. Um with policies, with in the you know budgets, taxes, um, education has I think uh, sadly been a real focus of the administration. So there's a lot to talk about, and none of it's good. None of it's good. Well, having having the you know his appointee, the D- Department of Education, kind of be you know top of conversation throughout the year. And and not just in ed tech corners and education, but like widely. I mean, that's pretty notable. That's a heavy, heavy year. Yeah, it is. It is strange that um, I think I certainly in the time that I've been an education uh, uh, journalist, I cannot recall education or the secretary of education being a name that most Americans would. Um, well, that would make most Americans sort of heave, <laughs> that they'd even know who who the person was is sort of shocking. I mean, I think I challenge, I would even challenge listeners who are in education to sort of name previous, uh, name previous secretaries of education. Um, 
I think that it's not typically a position that most people talk about when they talk about a particular when they talk about uh, what an administration has been up to. It's the Secretary of State, for example, or the Secretary of Defense. Um, so yeah, good old Betsy DeVos. Uh, yeah, good old Betsy. Yeah, well, I mean, between the Department of Ed and and the FCC, I mean, I think many different agencies. He's kind of, kind of his the people he's he's landing there. You know, is are doing a lot of damage, a lot of harm out there. There's, I mean, it's really interesting. It's it's the irony. I think the the irony for me is that I would not have, I would not describe very many of. Barack Obama's education policies as as things that I support, um, particularly at the K through twelve level. I think so. When I think about someone whose mission really seems to be undoing everything Barack Obama ever did, in some ways that might sound really appealing to a lot of people. Um, but but actually, the things that we're seeing in education are primarily at the higher education level, um, and that's a place in which I think the Obama administration did make some forward strides trying to increase regulations on the for-profit sector, um, addressing student the problems with student loans, um, uh, Title IX, uh, and a lot of those things are just being systematically rolled back. And there's money to be made. I mean, and I think that that's, you know, the, the theme that I, that I talk, touch on again and again, and I even see my work really is, you know, this over overwhelmingly we're seeing the narrative shift around education to be um, about business to be about profits education is no longer seen as a civic good it's seen as an individual private good that means that the risk uh, the risk and responsibility of education rests on the individual instead of on society as a whole so we're cutting back on social social programs that benefit the collective and really um, asking the individual to uh, to bear the burden. Um, but, but I think that that's, that's because we're sort of, because we're privatizing, outsourcing, uh, and again, reshaping the whole narrative of the meaning of education. There's so many people that, and I mean, that's, this is not new, but it's really exacerbated, I think, with tech. There's so many people that see money to be made um, in in what is in some ways not a new market, but that is fundamentally being reshaped by the language of the market. Tech, tech seems to go hand in hand with just escalating it at, at, at a level that's, that's pretty scary. Uh, I think that there's, you know, I think that there is something about um, the, the business of the technology giants right now that uh, I think makes this particularly um, dangerous again for democratic institutions. So now there's two possible segues we could take this conversation. Could pick up on that thread and talk about Amazon, or we could pick up on that earlier thread about context and the lack of context in my work, and talk about um, Alexander Russo's Q and A with me. Let's talk about Amazon. Ugh. Yeah. Okay, agreed. Yeah, whatever. Um, so, uh, do you want to do you want to give context for this since I suck at it? Well, no. I mean, Amazon is is basically, 
you know, Amazon, the, the retail giant, as well as Amazon, the web services, they're constantly, you know, opening up new uh, headquarters and they've been shopping themselves around lately and, and getting some pretty, pretty amazing uh, offers to, to set up shop around in different cities and, and regions. And just watching the process um, I don't know, unfold from, from my view. I mean, I, I see Amazon from the, from the cloud perspective and like that side of the exploitation, but this is more, I guess the, the, the warehouse side of it, right? Uh, no, this is the headquarters, right? So this is, this isn't, this is about opening what they're calling HQ2. So this is, I mean, Amazon has several distribution centers and many distribution centers and warehouses all over the country. Um, presumably in many parts of the world as well. But Amazon announced earlier this year that they were interested in opening up a second headquarters. And so uh, currently they're headquartered in Seattle. Um, but they asked for bids for from other cities in order to um, become the home for uh, for the, the second the second HQ. Um, they they said that you know they said you know fifty thousand fifty thousand new jobs um and again the i guess I guess the kind of thing that a lot of cities i mean that's probably it right there a lot of cities want to be able to lure a company like Amazon in in order to be able to provide what they imagine to be very well-paying jobs. These are 50,000 jobs at HQ, which is very different than 50,000 jobs in a warehouse. These are six-figure jobs, or uh, imagined to be, I think, six-figure jobs. So these are the type of people you want to be attracting to your city, and you're going to do anything to, to, to bring them in? Well, I mean, if I had a city, no. But um, sure, ostensibly. Um, sure, perhaps there are still people on the planet that want to uh, attract men in tech to their city. Um, I would think you'd want to do the opposite. But, um, but no, uh, so some 230 cities proposed, submitted bids. And, and it was in the news quite a bit that these cities were sort of doing these, trying to make their bids go viral and offering all sorts of really doing these, putting together these video packages and offering all sorts of weird and wacky things that sort of caught people's attention to begin with. But a reporter at the um, Seattle Times FOIA'd or through public, through public records requests with the individual cities who've submitted proposals, has it was able to get his hands on uh 30 or 40 of the proposals and to see the kinds of things that communities were willing to give to Amazon is really shocking and i think it's it's shocking that these corporate giveaways happen anyway but i think that if we think about the the power of small handful of these technology companies slash platforms it's it's actually quite frightening so um well so so chicago for example said as part of its deal that it would let amazon keep or i guess keep isn't the right word it would give amazon the 1.32 billion dollars in income taxes that its employees paid so employees in chicago would pay 1.3 some odd billion dollars in income taxes 
to, I guess, the city or perhaps the state. Um, and that money would then actually be, the, the state would turn around and give that money to Amazon, right? Rather than, you know, funding the schools. Wow. Um, That's like a significant power shift in how government works. Right. And I think a lot of these are things that we're quite familiar with. If you've ever been in a town that, you know, you and I both lived in Eugene, Oregon, which is sort of infamous for making these terrible decisions to lure businesses um, like Symantec. And it had a Sony CD manufacturing plant at one time. And it would, you know, it was like, you don't have to pay taxes. We're going to give you land for free. You're not going to have to pay water. And so a lot of the proposals were like that. But a lot of them were like a step beyond like this question of taxes um is and and income taxes is is sort of really dangerously insidious and the one that the Seattle Times called out as sort of the most frightening was Fresno Fresno California which promised to I'm reading from the article here promised to funnel eight funnel 85 percent of all taxes and fees generated by Amazon into a special fund that money would be overseen by a board half made up of Amazon officers half from the city and they would then decide on where to spend that money the proposal shows a park with a sign this park bought to you brought to you by Amazon with the company's smiling arrow corporate logo. Again, a, a significant shift in how government Yeah, works. I mean, this is fundamentally anti-democratic, right? I mean, even if you have powerful, com- you know, powerful companies are always lobbying cities, but to actually like come right out and say, you know, of the millions and billions of dollars in revenue taxes that, that your company provides our city, provides our county, provides our state, we're going to let you decide how to spend them is mind-boggling. Man, I'm wondering, is anybody mapping out all the the, the relationships between the, the big tech codes and, and cities? Because, I mean, we, I think, not last time or the time before we talked about, you know, wasn't it Google doing something in Montreal? Uh, Toronto, yeah. Um, this The waterfront in Toronto. Yeah. And so, like, is anybody mapping these things out? Um, I don't know about mapping out the the those kinds of things. I mean, I'm guessing that people probably are. Um, you know, I've... I just read Platform Capitalism, which, and I guess you read it as well. And I'm reading Franklin Forrest's book right now, World Without Mind. And I do think that, I do think that one of the shifts we've seen this year is um, a, a handful um, more writers and journalists turning a critical critical eye to the dangers of of these really powerful monopolies. Uh, I mean, because that's what Amazon, Amazon is a monopoly. And it's not just actually a retail monopoly. People think of it, oh, Amazon put the bookstore out of business or, or even Amazon is going to put Walmart out of business. But it's a, it's a much more powerful monopoly because of the data and then because of this technological piece that you're talking about, the cloud. Yeah, well, it's it's got a significant advantage because it's got a significant portion of the 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 rest of the web running on their platform as well. Right. So it's I mean it's a you know it's if you think about the this the the platform as these platforms as sort of new infrastructure um it's you know it's a bit like there being a monopoly over the electric company. Um and I think that you know a while ago we decided that 
that you know that what having utilities have such monopolistic power um it was not a good thing and there are regulations to you know to 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 uh, curb to curb their monopolistic um activities uh which again is a segue well if i mean if we've seen anything we've we've seen that they're uh they're really good at avoiding regulation because they're they're I don't know they're a new company you know they're in this new area and so thus I mean we see Facebook do this with on the media front you know they're all trying to avoid being something so that they can be these monopolies and I think I mean I do think that in some ways the monopoly the monopolistic power looks different than it did um, than monopolies did. Uh, you know, a hundred years ago, say, where you had, you had one company that was sort of, uh, or, you know, a hundred years ago, 50 years ago, 20 years ago, even if you had something like a decision to break up Ma Bell, right. Um, because of its hold on telecom on, uh, telephony. Um, cause it owned, it owned all the telephone, like it, it had control of all the, all um, telephonic communication, but the kind of monopoly that Amazon has is is different. I mean, because it's not simply a matter, like I said, it's not simply a matter of retail control, and and Google is a similar kind of way. Google, Google, Google. What how Google is a monopoly is, and how Amazon is a monopoly is partially because of their control of data the collection and analysis and storage of data. And and that's a monopoly. It's a new kind of monopoly. And it's one that I think is slightly different from the old economic sense of a monopoly, right? Where you own the majority of, you know, where you control the business. Um, But it's also, it's a, it's, it's new. And I think it's because of the way in which data is being used to further uh, data is sort of the fuel for this new economy, um, it's, its power just sort of reinforces itself. Like it's, you know, like people have, like there's no way that another company is going to come along now and compete with Google on search because of, da- because of the data that Google has, right? There's no one that's going to come along now and compete in terms of social networks with Facebook. Facebook is a monopoly. And don't tell me Twitter, right? Because Facebook has so much data that it's, it would be impossible to say, well, I'm gonna make the alternative to Facebook because you just don't have the billions of users and billions of clicks and billions of mouse hovers um, in order to get started, to be able to build a product and build an algorithmically generated product the way in which these companies do. Yeah, but they're 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 all the advertising is one key aspect of it, and they're all competing on that. I mean, I would say Google's still got a pretty strong grip on it, but Facebook and and kind of the meaning of what is ad ad revenue, you know, where's the money at? I think you know Amazon's playing with different versions of that, you know, um, in the retail as well as now in the the physical retail and the cross section of all of that. We see that at Whole Foods, and then the whole they're being in the home. 
And then, as you said, all the data and all the compute behind that, you know, you got their in-store behavior, you got their online behavior, you got their in-home behavior, you got all this data, you've got, you know, you look at Amazon Web Services, you got the, the compute, the DNS, the storage, you got all that, be- that, that engine behind that working. So, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting world. Yeah, I mean, I think that one can think of, I mean, advertising is in some ways the product that Google and Facebook both sell. Like that's their, what's where their revenue comes in. That's the product that they're selling. But the, um, the, but the material that they're building that product from, right, the raw material that that product is built from is data, is our data. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's uh it's the commodity right now. It's the you know, it's it's just as or more value valuable than than actual currency in the current state. Unless unless you're talking Bitcoin. That's Oh, yeah. No, no Ethereum. Ethereum. Yeah, which we're not going to talk about. Well, I guess that we should talk then about one the big news that dropped, the big tech news that dropped this week and conveniently dropped right when Americans were leaving for their Thanksgiving holiday. And that was that the FCC plans to vote next month to dismantle, quote, net neutrality. Yeah, I mean, moving from the tractor beam of the platform, moving out onto the network, which is, you know, there's not a lot of competition. You got the Time Warners, you got the, you know, um, you got the big companies that are, that are the, the network as far as to your mobile phone and to your home through your cable system, most likely. And that's, that's the network. And the FCC is basically rolling back uh, Obama, you know, really good, you know, another agency really good at rolling back previous legislation by Obama to that, you know, opening, opening up the network to be competitive. So um, you don't, you can create fast lanes and slow lanes and, you know, they they make the argument that it's opening up the internet and freeing it from these these burdensome regulations of the previous administration, but um, it's it's the same old same old game, just uh, another round. Yeah, I mean, I think that this one is this is particularly it's to me it's both particularly depressing because I've seen um, the internet, if you will, mobilize um, mobilize to challenge these. The, the moves by telecoms to um, to dismantle net neutrality. I've, I've seen the internet really sort of um, t- t- take on a lot of uh, take on a pretty solid activist bent in order to, to to protect net neutrality in the past. But you sort of feels like oh, to what end? Um, you know when when the agency like the FCC is going to be able to vote vote along party lines and and do the bidding do the do the corporate bidding despite the millions of comments that were left overwhelmingly in support of leaving net neutrality as is. Um, and there's another interesting side story about um, bots and the manipulation of of internet commenting. But I think that um, you know we know if we look at history, we do know that the that the uh, that the telecommunications companies, the broadband internet providers, wireless providers, they have a history of bad behavior, right? The decision to sort of create 
these rules that would prevent them from throttling or blocking content or privileging certain content. It didn't just come because Barack Obama like didn't like Verizon, right? We, you know, or didn't like, I guess actually didn't like innovation. That's the way in which it gets presented. Um, didn't like competition. I mean, there's a long history of these companies doing really shady stuff, you know, not letting, I mean, AT&T, for example, you know, AT&T blocked FaceTime, right? Apple's uh, video chat. You couldn't use FaceTime on AT&T because it was a, because it, because, because FaceTime was a competitor, right? Is a competitor to AT&T. So it was, or perceived to be a competitor. So, I mean, I think that this, that the rollback of net neutrality is, is bad and it's going to be, it's going to be particularly bad for schools. Um, and it's going to be particularly bad, I think, for people in rural areas who don't already have a lot of options about what their internet provider looks like. Well, I feel like the networks have a... And it's going to be bad for people like you and me who own our own business that we'd like people to be able to find our websites. Yeah. Yeah, because you're a little too loud for them, definitely, in in education. Um, I mean, I feel like they just... This is going to open up the networks to, you know, be be act and behave and take the lead of the platforms when it comes to the the data, when it comes to uh, speeding up, slowing it down, filtering it, censoring it, you know, dropping it, uh, forgetting about it. I think there's a lot of ways that, that the packets that people, depending on what plan you're on and, and area you're in and, and service you're on um, or zip code you live in, uh, you know, you could get different uh, different types of, types of service. So... You know, Ian Bogos wrote a really good piece, and I was glad that he did because his um, his piece in the Atlantic this week actually came closest to sort of how why I feel kind of lukewarm about net neutrality because I feel like in some ways it you know particularly when you hear companies like Google and Facebook um, and uh, up in arms about and and Netflix and the, and the like up in arms about it about net neutrality is you have to remember that they also already throttle and control what we see and so you meant you said the word platform but I think that what the telecoms have actually kind of failed to do is build platforms they've they they have not they have really um, they've sort of missed the boat on on having um and i would say regulation stopped them from being able to turn the kinds of data that goes through their pipes if you will into the kind of data mining platform that google that the googles and facebooks of the world have done now again some of that's already being rolled back by the fcc which announced that it was going to allow um uh, telecoms to sort of se- sell our personal sell our personal data, um, but the you know AT and T isn't a platform the same way in which Google is a platform. Um, they haven't done all of the they haven't done all of the things to make their site be a destination for data mining the way in which Facebook is a destination for data so for data mining. So the problem with the internet is 
is not just the telecoms now are going to throttle and block content. It's that we have built on top of these really exploitative telecoms is another layer of exploitative internet companies that are getting away with throttling and blocking what we see too. And so I think we have to focus on both of them and not act as though, and Ian makes a, Ian does a really good job of articulating this, that you hear a lot of bullshit that like net neutrality keeps the internet free and open. And that's, the internet is not free and open in any way, shape or form. And in fact, some of the companies that wrap themselves in this rhetoric, Google, are really, I think, responsible for the internet becoming the cesspool that it currently is. And that's because, again, that's because they've, they've built systems of exploitation because they have escaped the regulatory mechanism. Yeah, well, I think, I think platform uh, regulation is, you know, coming down the pipes. And, you know, we, we see that with advertising. I, don't, I mean, under Trump, it's not. Breaches. What's under that? Trump, it's not coming. And... Yeah, well, at some point. <laughs> Unless the meteor strikes before then, we can keep our fingers crossed. Yeah, well, I mean, we saw another data breach with Uber this week. I mean, it's it's getting out of hand. Yeah, Uber, I mean, it seems like every time we've done a podcast, we've had to point out some bad behavior with with um with Uber, but this week the news broke that I guess last year they had a data data breach with millions of people's personal information um hacked and Uber paid the hacker the hackers like a hundred thousand dollars to delete the data, which um seems sketchy in <laughs> yeah just just a little bit <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that it it demonstrates that you know all up and down this all up and down the chain i mean you know drawing on the platform capitalism book you know uber Uber is building a platform, so we can see that like net neutrality isn't going to keep us safe if companies like Uber continue their practices. Yeah, I mean, every, and everyone's trying to get a piece of the pie like this. You know, it's, they're trying to transform their, I don't know, their engine, they're into data collection engines. And whatever that looks like in the, in the hotel space or what it looks like in the taxi or transportation or in the uh, retail or e-commerce, I mean, it's... It's pretty scary stuff. I mean, I think for me, the you know the least we can do is I think again, despite the fact that this is certainly not going to happen under Trump, um, the least we can do is uh, impose uh, more regulations on these companies. I think we are going to see that in Europe starting next year, much um, much stricter rules around data around data collection. Um, so I think that that's well, at some point, I think that's there's a healthy balance that has to be struck, and I feel like right now the the EU with with the uh, PSD two around banking and the uh, general data protection stuff around people's privacy and what you can do or can't do with your data and what brokers can or can't do, um, I think those are all setting important tones that are going to make for good healthy uh, economies. But um, I don't really feel I feel like we're going to be kind of left behind for at least another few more years. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. Despite the, you know, despite the murmurs of 
um, murmurs of Flynn that were also uh, no longer talking to Trump's lawyers. Um, we didn't really get the Thanksgiving gift from Robert Mueller that I was hoping for. So, well, it's it's still the holiday season. Yeah, uh, really, all I want for Christmas is a perp walk. Yeah, me too. <laughs> well, till uh, till next time. Maybe next week. Maybe not. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to fight you on this one this time. All right. We'll see. <laughs> till next time. Till next time.